welcome back to our first episode of the Inside Ulster Belltel podcast with me, Neve Campbell. We were waiting for someone to step in there and say, me, Adam McKenzie, or me, Jonathan Bradley, and I think we both kind of looked at each other and kind of went, no. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, that was too polite. What a Very to, well rehearsed. <laughs> what, a, what a way to start. You can tell that we haven't rehearsed anything. This is just raw rugby knowledge and also we're going to make a few mistakes. <laughs> and I'm also very new to this and joining the guys. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> oh no, we're absolutely delighted to have you. It's good to have another voice on the podcast that's not one of us two. I think people have gotten sick of us eventually. I thought you were going to say we get sick of each other. Well, that's also true, but... <laughs> More more for the listeners at home. Oh, wait, oh, wait, that too. Um, guys, do you want to just jump straight in with, we're going to go over, obviously, the block that Ulster Rugby have had so far, because there's a lot to catch up on there, but will we sort of start with, with the latest win against Munster this weekend? What do you think? Jonathan, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, I mean, I think sort of what Dan McFarland alluded to in his post-match in Thoman Park. The fact of the matter is they haven't won down there in eight years there's been a number of occasions over that period where they've gone down and you've thought that they were in a good position to win maybe with Munster having their eye on another competition or an upcoming game or Ulster going down with a fairly loaded team instances like this and they haven't got the job done so the win disassociated from the performance is significant in and of itself I think and there's obviously a lot to dissect about the performance. Probably most notably the failure to score any points in the second half. And as Marty Moore said, making things a bit difficult for themselves. But I think first and foremost, without uh, sounding obvious, because it's not always the case in the ERC game, first and foremost, the headline is the fact that they won. Yeah, I mean, not trying to take anything away from... The fact that Ulster picked up what is a very big win away from home, and whenever you put it into the context of what they were suffering from the week before, you know, we were chatting to Dan McFarlane in the midweek, and he said some of the guys were still suffering from this gastroenteritis. Or, um, he pronounced I know, well done, Adam. Thank you. We were all struggling with that earlier. <laughs> I, I felt like I had to be the one to kind of step in and say it first because <laughs> I've been running it over in my head for like the last seven days. As soon uh, as we were able to switch to saying norovirus and E. coli, yeah. that, was, that was it. Oh, I was going for just a good old stomach yeah. bug. So you were... <laughs> <laughs> a dicky tummy. <laughs> Whatever you put it into the context of what they were dealing with, I think you do have to say it was a good win because you probably haven't had a full week of training trying to deal with getting over this bug you are inevitably going to have a little bit of fatigue as it comes to the latter part of the game because you're still trying to get over this and I think we did see that in the game I think we saw that Ulster did sort of flag a bit towards the end of the game it didn't help that they got the yellow card which obviously puts them at the numerical disadvantage but for them to come through that and still hang on for the win a first win in Toman Park uh, for uh, for eight years I think you do chalk this down as a good win. There are obviously aspects of it that they would want to be better and a lot better. But I think, again, in the context, how how much can you say that was Ulster you know, at the peak of their powers? If you were putting a percentage on what Ulster were able to produce in that game, are we talking maybe 70, 80%? Like, I don't think there's any way that they could have played that game at 100%. So no, absolutely not. You mentioned the training there; like they only trained on Wednesday, and that was coming back from South Africa. Mm. So that's a cross-continent flight with 
all the aforementioned issues. Training once on Wednesday, a captain's run on Friday, going to a place where you never win against a team where, because there's been a lot said about Munster's start to the season, but the fact of the matter is they beat the Bulls at Thoman Park, and that was their first game at Thoman Park in months. Like, they still don't lose really in Thoman Park an awful lot. Like, not many teams go down and win there. So, I think for all those reasons, probably most pressingly, the fact that they were coming off the uh, E. coli and norovirus. I think it was a very impressive result. And I think, given the context, you can't disassociate the result from the performance. Because let's not forget the fact that there have been an awful lot of times down the years where we've probably spoken about Ulster being able to see out wins and that's really come to the fore last year whenever you look at the uh, the Stormer semi-final the Toulouse last 16 second leg where we have been talking about specifically this group, this team and their ability to see out close games and yes there probably were some times when I was sat there thinking would you not take the points and make this a two score game so we are still talking about that sort of game management element to it but this combined with the Lions game which was another sort of backs to the wall seeing out over the last quarter obviously because of the altitude because of the fatigue I think you can make the argument that these are two games that Ulster could have lost last year even last year, like I'm talking about that level of progress season to season, like I genuinely think that certainly one of the two, possibly both of the two, Ulster could have lost those games last year and they won both. Uh, we're sort of veering into our talk about the the block as a whole. I'm still not wholly convinced that Ulster played out the final few minutes of that Lions game all that well. And I understand that people are talking, you know, about how other Ulster teams would have lost. And I, I take that point. But in the final few minutes of that Lions game, they give away a really needless penalty that could have put the Lions five metres out from their own line. And instead, your guy misses touch. You know, in an, in another universe, he hits the touch finder and the Lions mull over for a try at the end that arguably you shouldn't concede because you've given away a stupid penalty. Down in Tomond, all right, look... That was a lot more convincing because I don't think Munster were ever really going to score in those last few minutes. I didn't really feel like Ulster were in much danger. But to to limit it again back down to that that game on Saturday, you know Ulster were playing with a very strong wind in the first half that they didn't make advantage of. You know they only went in at half time up by twelve, was it? And the yeah. the commentators were saying it was maybe a 15, 16 point wind. So, again... Ulster it's Ulster would say it was a 12 point win. <laughs> win. Yeah, well, Ulster will conveniently say it was a 12 point win. Um, so, for, for me, look, the game management is better, and I think they have learned lessons from last year, sure. But I still think we haven't quite seen Ulster convincingly manage a game to victory. I, I, that's one of the things that I'm yet to see from this Ulster team is that whenever their backs are against the wall and the chips are down and whatever other cliches you want to throw out there that I seem to have a penchant for doing 
they haven't convincingly seen out a game that you would see some of the big European teams do whenever they are within seven points in a game they just find a way to masterfully close it out and not put themselves in a position where they are struggling you know like let's say they go for the post instead of going for the corner all right going for the corner puts the ball down at the other end of the pitch and it gives you a shot at the bonus point but Munster for 75 minutes of that game didn't look like crossing the line at all if you put that to a four-point game I don't think there's any chance that Munster are winning that game. At the very least, Munster turn that over. They get the ball up to halfway. With that wind advantage, they're one player stepping an inch over the offside line, and they've got a shot at winning that game. And Crowley was in decent kicking form on Saturday. That's that's the difference for me. You're You're relying on a player making a small mistake to give the game away instead of Munster working their way all the way up the pitch and scoring a try. Yeah, like I got what, I got what you're saying entirely, but um, one thing that I would say would be as well, and I haven't really heard too many people actually note this, but like, do you think Nathan Duke would have a kicking game like that again? Tough conditions. And they like, were tough conditions, but I think like we've seen enough of Nathan Duke kicking to know that that was a bit of an aberration. Yeah, it was. So there's, let's say, at least four points left behind. Nathan would probably say six points left behind. Now, they were all tough kicks. They were try scored in the corner. But he's not going to go over three too often. So something that, just as I say, I haven't seen too much mention of was Ulster overcame a game from their kicker where he missed everything. Yes, I, I, I take your point but there are other aspects of that game that they should have had it won a lot more comfortably. Like, Nathan Doak didn't have a great game down there, and he'll probably be the first one to say that. You know, the, the little knock-on just before Dave McCann scores the try that was chalked off, and uh, his game from the tee wasn't great. But, you know, f- I, I I get your point of they've come they've overcome a game where their kicker didn't have a great game, but there are other areas of that game where they should have had it won before that, in my opinion. Did anyone, did any aspect of the game surprise you? Like, for example, like Marty Murr, he really put in the work with the 80 minutes to get the, the well-deserved man of the match um, award. Are there any other aspects of the game? Like, were you surprised that Munster came back so close after the second half? I wouldn't say I was surprised by it because I thought... So I wasn't surprised that they came back, but I would say what surprised me was an awful lot of the monster players I thought caught the eye. Now obviously we're here to talk about Ulster, but like I thought Crowley was really good, Hodnett was really good, um Adogbo was really good. Like they've got a real find in Adogbo if he keeps up this form. Yeah, he was class. Like he obviously shouldn't have got the penalty on the line mm. when uh he wasn't supporting his weight. I don't I don't even know if the ground was supporting his weight, to be honest. But um <laughs> um like Marty Moore was asked about him earlier and asked about or afterwards and asked about the tackle that he made on him and he said the only way I was able to make that tackle was because he didn't see me coming because he's a big big man um, but I would say maybe the other thing that was eye catching from more of an Ulster perspective I thought was Rory Sutherland mm-hmm. um, who was really really impactful when he came on in his, his first 40 minutes um, what was the uh, 
two turnovers in the first three minutes two turnovers in the first three minutes and the biggest turnover that he had was actually the last one because that gave Ulster the opportunity to get down the other end of the field win a penalty that we both I think thought they were going to kick but in the end went to the corner and bled a bit more time out Um, but yeah because I thought there was an almost strange narrative and I I talked about this in my five things in Monday's paper there was an almost strange narrative around this signing that it seemed like a few people weren't that fussed about his arrival. I don't know whether it was because of um, the Kitchoff signing, which I guess we'll come to later, um, whether it was seen as a bit of a stopgap or whatever. But like, whenever we were talking during the summer, like you would have looked at Lucid as a hole in the squad. Whenever Ulster signed a tight head during the summer, we were all sort of thinking that's an odd piece of business considering that you have Marty Moore and Tom O'Toole there already and look a bit lighter on the other side of the scrum. So to like in the middle of a season fill what I felt was a hole in the squad of needing another loose head, you know, needing three senior players plus Callum Reid to still really come through. Like, let's not forget Callum Reid coming into this season. You know, he hadn't started whenever else we're looking at Props, you know, Callum Reid hadn't started a senior game for Ulster, you know. So I thought that for a player who wanted to come to Ulster and by all accounts wanted to come and fit into whatever budget <laughs> reconcerns Ulster had with his signing, uh, to put all that to one side, you know, any financial motivations for coming here to one side because he wanted to come to Ulster. I thought the reaction to it was a bit uh, nonplussed, shall we say. Lackluster. Yeah. And then I think for him to come in in 40 minutes in a big game, Interpro, make a big impact. Obviously, now we'll be away with Scotland, but um, for this break, but um, a really impressive 40 minutes of rugby. And then I think go on to be a really big player whenever we next see him, which could be probably that Leinster game and into that huge sort of December that Ulster have because Mm -hmm. December is going to be possibly the key month of the season, really. The surprising thing for me from this game is probably how little Ulster's backs had an impact on the game. And whenever your mall's going so well, I understand, like, going back to it, you know, if, if the well's constantly providing you water, then bleed it dry. So... Um, but you know Ethan McElroy barely had a touch Ben Moxham barely had a touch now, ironically the one touch that I do remember Ben Moxham having he made a great run down the wing so Ethan um, McElroy had that great uh, double kick down the line do you remember? Sorry yes yeah. oh yeah I remember noting that down on the blog because <laughs> I actually thought that should have resulted in the yellow card to be honest given the proximity to the line But well it was more of a yellow card than is it you agree getting a yellow card for what was essentially, I don't know, a failure to evaporate? Like well, exi- <laughs> existing in the space. In, in fairness, Izzy does like reach up and grabs the ball. Like it is a very obvious attempt to try and stop the quick tap from happening. I think the yellow might have been a bit harsh because it was essentially his first defence, but equally it was a rather cynical act. Um so I was just surprised, you know, given that 
you've got James Hume coming back in and clearly he's got a bit of match fitness to work back up towards because he wasn't quite as sharp as what we know he can be like the guy was almost unplayable last season he he was just maybe a little step off but that'll that'll come over the uh over the next few games but i i was just surprised how little they actually did use them i thought there was maybe just a little bit more of a chance to use them, especially in the second half where the forwards were tiring, the backs hadn't been used quite so much. All right, you're running into a bit of a wind, but I just thought there was maybe a bit more of a chance to use them. So that that's maybe where I was a little bit surprised. Great to see Hume score like after saying all that, but equally, I do think there can be a little bit of an over-reliance on the mall sometimes, you know, whenever your plan A, because Munster did eventually work it out, it it gave them the platform in the first half, but Munster did eventually find a way to stop it, and once your plan A stops working, you have to have a plan B, and it just seemed like Ulster maybe didn't think they would ever need the plan B, and once they suddenly had to use it, they weren't quite sure what it was, and that's where they came unstuck in the second half. Like, no matter how strong the wind was in the second half, no matter how much Munster were coming back and the fatigue was setting in for Ulster, to score no points in the second half at all yeah. is something that I think they're going to be a little bit concerned by. And you, you can argue that they could have had the points if they had kicked the penalty. You know, theoretically, if you wanted to, you could have taken the points. So was it really a scoreless second half? Maybe not. But to come away from that game, having played an entire 40 minutes with no points probably something you want to go back in the review on Monday morning and take a look at. James Hume giving it the discount double check Aaron Rodgers belt celebration. That was a surprise to me as well. <laughs> Don't know where that came from. Is he, is he a Green Bay fan? You would think I would have known this if that was the case. <laughs> Stephen first was sort of agreeing with you, Adam, in his column in the Sunday Life this week, um, just talking about Ben Maxim hardly touching the ball and Ethan McElroy barely touching it as well. Um, and he was also a bit harsh on James Hume. Um, saying like it was his first game back but apart from his try he didn't really see him in open space but he also said that he found the game dull and uninspiring I don't know if what do you guys make of that harsh harsh enough sort of words to use I, f- I do think that you have to put it in the context of everything that we've said before but also in the whenever you're talking about uh, the back line not really being involved like we've said that Nathan Doak didn't have his best game. Billy Burns didn't have his best game. McCluskey wasn't there. Hume playing his first game in, what, since June. Lukey Marshall switching into 12 from 13, so you've got a, you know, a different combination there. Filthy night, which maybe didn't come across. I don't know, but whenever you saw like as good a footballer as Stuart Moore sort of struggling with the ball in the air the way that he did on a few occasions like there was an awful lot working against the back line to really get involved and grab a foothold in the game and sort of as Adam said like the mall like the mall gets a bad rap but like if it's working it's working like it's up to the opposition to stop it which for the first what 40 odd minutes they couldn't now obviously there was also they had three more opportunities in the second half which uh on another day, you would say they would absolutely be backing themselves to have got that fourth score from one of those three opportunities. But um, I don't know. Things have really turned on their head. Like Adam's 
being awfully pessimistic and I'm the one sat here <laughs> saying do you know what I actually think it was fine Angel and the devil on the shoulders <laughs> I mean for, for so long I've tried to be the paragon of optimism and maybe it's just the fact that we've had to we've had to wait seven games into the season to do our first podcast that uh, <laughs> everything's just come to a head and I'm now flipped the other way I just think you're getting older mate you've lost your youthful enthusiasm <laughs> Talking about though if we're reviewing the block as a whole, because this is obviously within the first block, and Dan McFarland is very, seemed to be very positive himself. And he said, you know, he's really proud. And he said that a heavy away defeat by Munster back in 2018, um, what was it, 60, 67 to 7? 64-7, yeah. 64-7. He's feeling very positive and coming off the back of the Lions win as well, obviously. Um, as a whole, Adam, do you think that this season so far has been positive? Yeah. <laughs> the tone. Well, if you I know, have to, yes. <laughs> do you want me to be pessimistic and say it's been an absolute disaster? Because you, you can't say it's been an absolute disaster. They've got what five wins from six, yeah. and the only defeat is to Leinster, who are currently on their unbeatable form. So, I, I don't think you can come away from it saying it's been uh, a negative start to the season at all. Um, I would have loved to have seen how that Sharks game would have gone if they got it played to see where that uh, to see where Ulster are compared to a squad like the Sharks like that would have been an absolute blockbuster of a game whenever you saw the team that they released uh, and you, you do hope that game gets replayed I don't think it'll get replayed at a time where you're going to have two equivalent squads to what they were going to have mm-hmm. if the game had been played a couple of weeks ago but you would like to see Ulster going up against a team like that and just being able to compare themselves Look, it it has been a positive start to the season. I mean, you're sitting second in the table. You've got a game in hand that you still have to make up. Sorry, they are second in the table, aren't they? They are. Second, they are. Yeah, I wasn't sure if one of the results had dropped them back down to third. So, you know, whenever we're talking, and we we sort of talked sort of before the start of the season, Ulster's start to the season was very tough. You know, you've got a tough trip to the Scarlets. You've got uh, Leinster at home. Mm-hmm. You've got your two South African games up early. They got their first win in South Africa in the URC against a team that was in form. You know, the Lions were very much in form. They picked up some great wins on their travels, then came back to South Africa and Ulster battled through the altitude, through the fatigue, mm-hmm. and they held on for that win. They've got their first win down in Tillman Park since 2014. Scrappy as it was, mm-hmm. they got it. They battled through all those contextual things that we we mentioned there and I think you're just seeing some good rugby you know Luke Marshall's back and he's playing very well um yeah I I think it's just you're just seeing some good rugby from Ulster and if they can keep this going the back end of the season the fixture schedule is comparatively light compared to what they've already gone through Mm -hmm. so there's every chance that as long as they're not well off the pace they're setting themselves up pretty well for the back end of the season already. What do you think, Jonathan? Would you see him? Yeah, I mean, you know, you're looking at it, you, you want to finish in the top two. That should be their goal for their for the season. I think top two, get that home, that home quarter, home semi, as we saw last year. Obviously, you would pretty much say that proved their undoing last year having to go away in the semi-final I think we all think they would have won it in Ravenhill so top two is the goal they're in the top two with a game in hand 
having already been to South Africa, having played three derbies, admittedly two of them at home, but like the sort of irony of what we were saying about the stronger start to the season is they're only halfway through it because it's really come the Six Nations when things, I think, start to open up a wee bit. Now, I know that their next game is against Zebra, who have been beaten by everybody. But, like, when you get beyond that, you know, you've got Leinster, Sale, which is a massive, massive game. Now, whenever that draw was made, we were probably looking at that, thinking, you know, Fafta Clerk's leaving, Lou Diagers leaving. Are they going to be the same team? Well, they're, like, they're going great guns in England. And then La Rochelle come to Belfast, who actually, ironically, have fallen off the pace a little bit themselves in recent weeks, but are still going to be a massive team coming to Belfast. Then you've got another string of derbies. And to finish up what I would call sort of the second block of the season, you've got the Stormers, the champions, coming to Belfast. So they are going very well. If they are going as well as they are now, come the end of January, I think you can really start to look ahead to that end of season with an awful lot of optimism. And then in terms of as well, like the big elephant in the room is the gastroenteritis. I think I'm saying that right. <laughs> you got it. Um, Everybody said it but me now. <laughs> feeling the pressure for later. Yeah. That sort of puts, well, not a stop as we saw because they, they did come back and they, as you said, Adam, like the beat monster and it was scrappy. But um, Jonathan, you wrote in your column this week just about the, the conspiracy theories around that, which I think it's, it's sort of funny and important to touch on because Dan McFarland wasn't too quiet about it himself with the like he didn't say no comment put it that way yeah I think Dan did very well to uh, give across what he felt without saying too much Mm -hmm. obviously I don't think it would have done anyone any good if he came out and uh, started uh, slobbering yeah (laughs) for want of a better word exactly to use a good northern Irishism yeah slobbering Slobbering about Durban and slobbering about uh, the ERC's independent medical uh, review inquest whatever they're calling it I'd also like to point out as journalists we would absolutely love it if he did that yeah uh, like you're, you're saying nobody would I would absolutely love it if he just came out and took swipes at everyone well I think like my fear which maybe came across in the column was going to be that like last week was all just going to be we're turning the page to Monster. we're only here to talk about Monster. give it to Bill Belichick you know uh, that would that would have been terrible so the fact that we did have something to talk about through the week whether it was um Durban ice cubes or Durban showers or <laughs> or the fact that Martin and I said there are some indications that the Glasgow Warriors and Ulster brought brought it over themselves strangely yeah I mean look we haven't seen the review <laughs> the review could say anything but if we're expected to believe the two games were postponed because of gastroenteritis woohoo <laughs> three and three that was independently brought in to the country by two different teams who happened to then be in the same place. Like, what are the odds of this? Like, I'm no medical expert. I don't find everything has to be. <laughs> I, I feel I feel very strongly that I have to say this. I'm not a medical it medical would be expert. Incredible if you were a medical expert, but it somehow ended up working with us. Well, you know, that, journal- would have, that would have been a real waste of resources. Journalism pays better than being a doctor, I've heard. <laughs> you can tell this is your first day on set. <laughs> Thank you. Um, how could a team 
how could two teams yeah. bring a virus into South Africa, not feel any effects from it for the entire first week that they're there, play two games, and then suddenly feel the effects? Yeah. Like the the timeline just does not work out here. How would you bring a virus and then not actually? suffer from the virus for a full week yeah like, but Dr. Google says that the, <laughs> the incubation period for E. coli is uh, not long enough for this to have actually been a thing and I would just like to point out again I am not a medical expert I, I don't know if it was you guys I was talking about this but it was 29 out of 34 of the squad wasn't mm-hmm. it and then 13 backroom staff Yeah. but I was saying to someone like out of the those five people that didn't get it, like it's a bit more worrying that they weren't drinking any water. <laughs> I was like, how were you going to fare on the day there in the heat and everything? But they, uh, they maybe take their take their water without ice. Maybe that's a uh, bottle right. bottle water, no ice. That could be it. That's a new rule from now on forever. Yeah, good holidays. <laughs> um, but yeah, but in terms of like the the positivity um, that we're going to continue with here, um, there's lots of exciting up and coming players that we've talked about before. Also. One thing that I thought was interesting with the the Lions win, I saw a stat that um, they they struck very early in the second half. Um, also, Ulster scored the opening try within the first two minutes for the second game in a row that they did against the Ospreys. So do you think that, you know, they're more attacking now in terms of like what you would have thought at the beginning of the season, Jonathan? I think that what they have done well in that regard is doing well quarter to quarter to quarter to quarter because we've talked about this before a number of years ago and I'm probably going back to Les Kiss era Ulster where I was like why is this team not starting well and then you know last year or sorry two years ago with Dan's Ulster we had the what's going on with this third quarter like you know you you have the, the good start and then you let things slip in the third quarter and then last year it was the fourth quarter that we were talking about so the fact that they're coming out of the blocks quickly, getting those early scores, you know, that's laying the foundation. But for me, it's the fact that they're seeing it through. Like, they're not hitting their straps. I'm not saying they're hitting their straps for 80 minutes. Like, I don't, I don't you know, go back to the, the debates that we had on previous podcasts about is it even possible to have this sort of 80-minute performance? But they're putting in consistently, I think, relatively level quarters so we aren't having those dramatic dips across a game that we would have seen in past years that really I think proves your undoing in the bigger games like I know I'm saying this on the back of a game when they didn't score in the second half but across the entire block I think we're seeing more consistency across the 80 minutes Mm. it is a very interesting psychological discussion because I think one of the teams that has mastered peaking at the right times in games is Saracens who for the majority of the seasons where they were consistently winning trophies and consistently competing what they did was they essentially just sort of stayed in touch in the first half they it might be that they were leading at half time but essentially they didn't play themselves out of the game and then in the third quarter they just absolutely hammered their opponents it was like they they kind of just went in at half time refreshed and then came out and gave it absolutely everything they have for the third quarter and they would just tear teams apart it would absolutely tear them apart uh, in terms of their morale first and foremost but also physically and then the fourth quarter they didn't even need to do anything special they would just sort of ease to the win because they'd already done all the hard lifting in the third quarter 
But I quite like this, you know, trying to be more of a level performing team across the four quarters just because I, I agree with Johnny. I, I don't think we've seen that enough from Ulster. We have seen Ulster teams over the past have these wild dips during games. So for them now to be competing consistently across the four quarters, I think is something that they have had to work on. It's probably something that they've had to do quite a bit of psychological work on, actually. But for them now to be in a position where they are having these kind of impacts in all games. And I think that also speaks to the value of the depth of the squad now and the bench, that they're able to bring these guys on. There's no sort of dip in the level in the third and fourth quarters as well. I think that's something that you do really need to... It has been a very positive thing that has come from this season especially. Psychologically as well, just talking about that, Adam, do you think... I was listening to a South African journalist on the radio and like, forgive me, I'll find his name for next week. I can't remember who it was. But do you know it's interesting to see from an outsider's perspective what people in different countries think of Ulster? Mm. And he was saying that he thinks as a whole, Leinster is seen as, as the best team in Ireland just because like the reputation trophies precede them. But Ulster would sort of be a close second. But do you think Ulster has like an inferiority complex when it comes to Leinster? And because they're that's the only loss thus far. But they are obviously, like you said, like, and their undefeated undefeated streak. Oh, I love this question. <laughs> Inferiority complex. Very possibly, yeah. I mean, you see the number of psychological blows that Leinster have inflicted on Ulster down the years. I mean, you had that historic run for so long that Ulster hadn't won against Leinster in Dublin. How many years was it? Got to be 20, 2013 until last year, but also. 2013 was also the only one going back until uh, going back to 99, 1999. Yeah, so, sorry, that's that's the one I meant. So the what was that? About 14 years of psychological torment. Every time Ulster went down to Dublin, they could not win. There was just sort of that mental block. And then they got that one, and it's kind of like we, we've put that behind us. But then to be beaten by them in so many knockout games, you know, the Pro 12 final, the Heineken Cup final, the he- the now European Cup semi-final. Every time Ulster got to the knockouts, it seemed like there was Leinster waiting for them and there was Leinster knocking them out. And if you get, if you keep getting hit by that many blows so many times, it is going to have an impact on you mentally that, you know, you see them next on the schedule next season in the knockouts. It's like, man, can we not get rid of this team? And even last year, I was thinking about this uh, maybe a couple of weeks ago, even last year, there was probably a little bit of that psychological blow again because Ulster managed to miss Leinster in the knockouts and still didn't win the trophy. So it's kind of like, even whenever we miss Leinster, we still don't win the trophy. So Living in the head, rent free. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So like, I don't know though, to be honest. Like I think those two wins last year... And the fact that somebody else beat Leinster last year would make me think that... I understand that, obviously, Leinster won the game this year, but I wouldn't put too much stock in that. And, like, this is a different group of players. So, like, the group of players that lost a 2011 league game, the 2012 Heineken Cup final, the 2013... Pro 12 final, there's so many of these that I'm going to leave one out. But basically, year after year after year, 
seeing Leinster beat them in their biggest match of the season. Most of those guys are gone. And, you know, this could be like a sports journalism hang up that you know putting too much stock in one moment but I just think winning in the RDS James Hume's shrug in celebration and sealing that game I just think that was sort of like a breakthrough moment of you know we don't have this inferiority complex against Leinster and I think what you're saying I think would have been really interesting if Ulster had have went on to win the league without beating Leinster like how that would have been viewed, maybe on the outside, you know, by, as you say, people in in South Africa. Like, it obviously wouldn't have been seen as this, like, changing of the guard because you hadn't come through Leinster. But I don't think Ulster would fear playing Leinster away in a semi-final any more than they'd fear playing... Fear's the wrong word. Um, be up. I don't think they would see it as any greater a challenge than playing, say, the Sharks away or the Bulls away or even the Stormers away in a semi-final. You know, I don't think there is that big game block against Leinster anymore. I don't think. Obviously, this is all hypothetical until we get to, like, May and then <laughs> they play a semi-final and Leinster trounce them or something. But I, I would say historically there's still got to be something there, though. Like, a lot of these guys that have come through as much as they haven't experienced the disappointment of losing to Leinster in a big game first hand you know Mike Lowry was a fan before he became a player James Mike Hume Lowry was played a, that 2019 game I suppose is the, yeah. uh, the European Cup quarter final. Yeah, James Hume fan before he became a player uh, I was going to say Rob Balakoon but Rob Balakoon was is sort of the poster boy for taking up the game late and yeah. uh, making the most of things but you know an Arsenal fan unfortunately <laughs> these guys they know what has happened in the past just because they weren't involved in it doesn't mean that it hasn't touched their lives and it doesn't impact you know what they see whenever they walk into Ravenhill and uh, sort of the feeling around you know Ulster versus Leinster you know these guys as much as they try to insulate themselves in a bubble they do see all the build up to games and all the talk about this is Ulster v Leinster again you know the, you can't sort of get away from that history so I, I will agree with you that I think the RDS win last year has lifted sort of maybe a maybe a fog over the mind for want of a better word but I wouldn't I again inferiority complex is maybe slightly too strong but I, I would say Leinster still sort of have that mental hold over Ulster until Ulster managed to beat them and I, I'm going to try and use my words carefully in a game that matters you know like a, a, a regular season game matters but not as much as obviously a knockout game you know if Ulster meet Leinster in a final and beat them I think that is the point where you're able to say Ulster have truly managed to get over the hump that Leinster have this mental hold over them until they do that I think every game that they win during the regular season is just sort of a step towards getting over the hump but it's only whenever they finally knock them out of a competition I think that's when you're finally able to say they've broken this I don't know like I really don't because like I don't think James Hume James Hume's maybe a bad example because like obviously not lacking in self-confidence but like like I don't think James Hume looks at Robbie Henshaw and thinks 
oh, that's Robbie Henshaw. That's Ireland centre. You know, I think he sees himself as on a level playing field. And Hume's probably the player that gets talked about the most in this level of self-belief. But, like, equally, I don't know that Mike Lowry looks at Hugo Keenan and thinks that's the Ireland fullback and I'm Ireland's second-choice fullback, so he's a better player than me. I don't think he thinks that way. I don't think Nick Timoney looks at a Leinster back row and thinks I can't compete with them. You know, I think this group in general of young players has the right level of confidence and the right level of self-belief and I think that's crucial because I don't think it's arrogance. I think it's the appropriate level of belief in what they can do. And another bigger thing almost again is all those games that we're talking about down the years, like a number of those were Joe Schmidt teams or a Leinster outfit that was still feeling the benefit of Joe Schmidt feeling the benefit of the Joe Schmidt years even after he'd gone to Ireland and I think when you talk to people like Rory Best about whenever Schmidt did go into Ireland and that sort of realisation of oh this is how far behind we are in terms of what they're doing behind the scenes I also don't think anyone in Ulster will feel like that anymore. Like, I think they will feel that their preparation and their detail is level. Maybe this is just me being pessimistic again it because be. uh, <laughs> because we've seen so few wins at the RDS. <laughs> and see, talking about the Ireland team in general, guys, just going to go into our, our Ravenhill rant segment of this. You, you brought us perfectly into it, Jonathan, there, bringing it up. Um, there are eight Ulster players that have been called up to the Ireland squad. Um, who Who should play? On Saturday or in general? We'll go for Saturday first. Uh, or maybe so your answer is the same to both. <laughs> Saturday's a tough one because I think Ireland are, as South Africa are, um, a very settled side at the minute. The last that we saw them was in New Zealand, obviously making history. And I suppose the debate really comes from whether you think that guys like Hugo Keenan can come in and play South Africa straight away. Jameson Gibson Park's in the same boat, but in the absence of John Cooney in the squad, that's not really a debate for uh, how many Ulster players should play. Um, Just quickly before you say something, this is our Ravenhill rant section. How is Nathan Doak not in the Ireland Day squad? Well, he is, sort of. He's been called down to train with them, but not be part of the squad. Doesn't make a lot of sense. So he's not part of the squad. So he wasn't named as part of the squad, but then afterwards was called I, I didn't understand why I wasn't just in the original squad yeah. um, but I think obviously they've gone with their scrum half pecking order which is Caelan Blade will uh, Caelan Blade, Blade is the fourth choice scrum half at the minute so he will be the one presumably that uh, plays that game alongside whomever doesn't of the three scrum halves doesn't make the squad unless Jameson Gibson Park is out injured but I genuinely can see a situation where no Ulster player plays against or starts against South Africa I think Rob Herring will be on the bench I think Kieran Treadwell will be on the bench I think the one that you can make the most compelling argument for is probably Stockdale which seems almost counterintuitive given that he hasn't played since that Leinster game but I think he can replace James Lowe like for like on the left wing they've got a similar kicking game 
I appreciate that it was a month ago now, but Jacob did look very sharp coming back in. But I don't think we'll see an Ulster starter outside of that. The one that I would make the argument for, and again, it's probably because of injury more than anything else, is Treadwell might start because Burns picked up a little bit of a, a knock. And just the fact that Treadwell was so good on that New Zealand tour and came back and was good for Ulster in the games that he did play and he picked up a little bit of an injury as well. But he might start just because he's slightly more match fit than uh, than Tag Burn is. But yeah, I, I'm i going to go for Stockdale will start. I think he'll be put onto the wing and... I, I just think there is that feeling down in the Ireland camp that Stockdale, when fit, is one of their number one wingers, which I think would actually be harsh, ironically, on Robert Balakoon, who I think has played quite well this season and obviously went out with Emerging Ireland and got to impress not only on the pitch with all of the coaches bar Andy Farrell, but would have got the chance to pick the brains of Simon Easterby, Mike Cat. You know, he he would have had a chance and sort of like the inside track ahead of the autumn series to chat to these guys and sort of say, you know, well, what are you looking for? What do you need me to do? So, but I I think Stockdale is kind of their guy. So I think I think he's going to come back in and he's going to start on Saturday. I mean, the obvious point of debate here is Stuart McCloskey. So Stuart McCloskey has been once again among Ulster's very best players and has six caps and if he gets a seventh during this autumn we expect it to come against Fiji again Mm -hmm. and will be a much changed team so I suppose from an Ulster perspective it's what more does McCluskey have to do then to start he has to be Robbie (laughs) Henshaw or Robbie Henshaw has to be injured yeah (laughs) I mean uh, I don't think we've ever made our feelings very secret on, on this podcast about, well, sorry, th- this is a new podcast technically, on, on, on other podcasts <laughs> about how much we feel like Stuart McCluskey should have more caps for uh, for Ireland. But the, yeah, the, the truth is, you know, how, as good as McCluskey has been, have either Henshaw or Ringrose been bad enough to justify being dropped? the unfortunate answer is no so he's gonna stick with us tried and tested and in my opinion rightly so and it is harsh on McCluskey who has been so good to start the season but it's just where where he is and again unfortunately because he is a 12 and a 12 only that means he can't even get on the bench because you need that versatility on your bench you can't afford to have a, a guy who can only play one position on the bench so it is unfortunate but it's, uh, it is the way it is, unfortunately. I mean, Ringrose has been really good this season, which probably works against this argument as well, because I think you could, when you look at the size, the sheer size of the South African team and the struggles that Ireland have had in combating teams of that nature, so basically South Africa, France and England, when they're on it, are the teams that Ireland most struggle against. So McCluskey could be that physical presence. Well, the Springboks have just named their team as, as we're recording this, and Damien De Allende is the is the inside centre. Is that with Jesse Creel? Yes. 
in the center. Yeah. yeah. So you know that's that's a sizable center pairing in the midst of a sizable sizable team. McCluskey is unique almost in Irish rugby in that he would not look out of place in a South African team. So if you're looking to fight fire with fire, there's definitely an argument to be made that this is the game for McCluskey much more so than uh, the Fiji game. Although maybe that offloading game will <laughs> kind of fighting fire for fire when it comes to the Fiji game, I suppose. If you're talking about that's your predictions on who you think out of Ulster, you know, will or won't start, is that what you would like to see? Like, I know, Adam, you said that probably rightly so McCluskey won't won't be put on but like is it something that you would you would like to see just in an ideal world I'd have all of them in the team <laughs> but um, I and we played in Ravenhill and <laughs> <laughs> we not have free tickets we have all the Springboks walking up in front of us to interview on our way through for features um, I like in, a, in an ideal world I think you'd have one of the two wingers starting um I honestly can't decide between Stockdale and Balakoon. I think Stockdale, you've got that higher ceiling. You know, you've got that whenever he's on form, I think he is the best winger in Ireland. But I think Balakoon's maybe in slightly better form at the moment. Just sort of recency bias because he's been playing more recently. Um, But apart from that, I, I don't think there's anybody else that you can really make an argument for that they have been good enough to break into the team in all honesty like Treadwell's maybe the closest and again it's because of injury you know Treadwell I don't think would even be in the 23 if Henderson was fit but apart from that like it's it is hard to say that any of the other guys would deserve to be in there you know Marty Stu- Murray <sighs> he's, not, he's not on the squad but no, does, does squad. he deserve to be in the Ireland 23 part of the issue as well is that Finley Bielham has actually had a very good start to the season too he has but Marty's been so good like I, I think whenever you look at Marty Murr and what he does for Ulster week in week out he fits so seamlessly into the Ulster system like he does exactly what they need him to do which is he can play 80 minutes he hits anything that moves and has an extremely high tackle success rate as well and he is an absolute lockdown prop at the scrum. Like, how often can you remember Marty Murray being penalised at the scrum? Can barely think of one off the top of my head. So he he is such a rounded prop. The problem is he's so rounded. I don't think there's anything that he does that is stands out. Stand out. For want of a better word, I think he's sta- I do think he stands out defensively. I just don't think defense stands out. If that, if that that's a very sense. good, yeah, that's a very good way of putting it. Actually, like he doesn't have the ball carrying ability of Tag Furlong, and I don't think he is a destructive scrummager like Tag Furlong can be on occasion, which again are things that stand out. And I think his age works against him as well. And whether people agree with that or don't. He's 30... 31. 31. So... So we'll ignore the fact that you said being 31 works against you. (laughs) I'm 26. I've got time on my side. Um, You want to start writing in there. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, if if Marty Murr was mid-20s, 
I think he's in that squad, no problem. I think for a team that has never got beyond the quarterfinals of a World Cup, I think having Marty Moore as Furlong's backup gives you the best chance of getting to a World Cup semi-final in less than a year's time. So I think Mar- Marty Moore... Now, fair enough, he's in the A-team, and I think that's good to see. The hope, I think, would be that he does very well for the A-team and not that he is in the A-team. Just him and Dave Kilcoyne essentially to provide experience in the front row so they don't get... Uh, so they don't lose it in the scrum and the game becomes essentially pointless because mm. you're not going to compete against any New Zealand team without a solid basis of the scrum. So the hope is that he does well, that he impresses, and who knows, maybe you do see him get a cap in the next two games, but personally I would have already had him in there because I think, like I say, he gives you the best chance at the World Cup. And on that point, I would rather see Balakun start against South Africa because I think Balakun as your right winger at the World Cup gives you a good chance, a better chance than you have of, say, getting to the World Cup. So being eight, nine months down the line, or maybe even at the Six Nations, and realising Robert Balakun is your best right winger. I'm going to agree on Marty Murr. If I have my choice, I'd have him in the squad, hands down. I just don't think he is going to get called up to the squad because... I think there is that preconception that he's he's not the guy moving forward. And I th- I think if they even considered that, then he would be in the squad ahead of Tom O'Toole. Um, Didn't even mention Tom O'Toole there. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to agree on the wingers. Who do you I, think should be the right winger at the World Cup? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that Balakun won't be. I think Stockdale is. I think Stockdale at the peak of his powers, and I think we forget how good he is whenever he is at his best because we haven't seen it for so long. This is like this isn't a knock on Stockdale at all. I just think personally, you know what you have in Stockdale, and realistically, I think he's going to start either James Lowe or Jacob Stockdale in a World Cup quarterfinal when both are fit. I'm not sure if I think he'd start both of them. Whereas, to have a player... Like, right wing is a position that we don't really know in the Ireland team. Is it Keith Earls when everybody's fit? Is it Andrew Conway? Personally, and to be honest, I've probably been saying this since the last Six Nations, or really the, the last November, that I think very soon Balakun will make it obvious that he is the best option for the right wing and I think he would be better served playing in a game against South Africa because bearing in mind his caps have come against Argentina and the US Mm -hmm. so this would be a big step up and I think he'd get a lot more from that than Jacob would albeit with Stockdale not having played a game of this magnitude for Ireland in a good while himself. I do think Ulster's two best... Or, sorry, well, Ulster and Ireland's two best wingers are Stockdale and Balakin. I think we would need to see it from Jacob again, to be honest, because... Yes, sorry, James sorry, Lowe, sorry, yes. Like, James Lowe has been so good for Ireland. Like, we're not talking about the James Lowe of his early Ireland caps. And I think Jacob, 
said this himself in an interview with us um, at the start of the season. Like he sees himself as having to start again from the bottom, and he's not been helped in that. Obviously, with uh, the injury, he was going well before that injury, but like he has to get that jersey back off James Lowe, mm. and I don't think James Lowe's done anything to lose it. Certainly not the way that he's played over the past year. Really going back, you know, everyone I suppose goes back to that. All Blacks game and that uh, that big hit that sort of quelled what we all thought was going to be a 2013-esque All Blacks comeback. When, or maybe I should say if instead, but maybe still still too early, too up and coming, when do you think Lowry should get his cap? Lowry's actually a really interesting position here, I think, because we're all just assuming that Hugo Keenan's going to come back in the team. And like I wrote a column about this a few weeks ago saying that... It would be out of character, I think, for Andy Farrell to roll the dice on Laurie in this game, even with Hugo Keenan not having played yet this season. But like, there's an argument to be made that it's nuts to throw Hugo Keenan in for his first game of the season against South Africa. I, Sorry, this is assuming that we're in agreement that Laurie is the second choice fullback. Yes. I don't, I don't think there's any disagreement that Laurie is sort of the incumbent if Keenan's not available. Because it could be Jimmy O'Brien, which would then... No, I, th- I think Jimmy O'Brien's settled into winger now, so I, I think that's... Oh, um, I'll not say the, the ship sailed, because you can obviously move back to fullback fairly easily, but I think if you were going to not put Keenan in for this game, I think Larry is the guy you'd go for. It, it really is just a question of how ready is Hugo Keenan. Like, David, Hugo Keenan might be the kind of guy, he might be Sexton Light, where he can just drop into the Ireland squad at the drop of a hat. Like, it, it could be that he flourishes having not played for weeks in, in advance, or it could be that he's so cold he needs to go sit under a space heater for the next hour. So, And we don't know, because we haven't really seen this from Keenan, because obviously he's played all but one yeah. of the games, and that was a game that he was arrested for, so we haven't, re- since he came into the team, obviously... Um, we spoke to Ian Henderson about this not that long ago, that players are different when mm. it comes to whether they can just drop in like they haven't been away or whether they need a couple of games to build up. So it's a good point that you make, Adam. Like, we don't know what type of player Hugo Keenan is. The reality is that Andy Farrell probably doesn't know mm. because this is a different situation. In having, you know, We saw it with James Hume. Like, I think James Hume said himself it wasn't his best game coming back in for a first time since that uh, since that New Zealand turn Keenan played on a few more weeks than Hume did before uh, before injury but it's a massive ask the only thing that I will say is that Keenan gave an interview back whenever he was rested for that Italy game and uh, Larry started and he very much made it clear that he wanted to play the Italy game he wanted to keep going and while you know players will always say they want to play every game and I, I don't think any player would be different. But I do wonder if that's kind of a, an insight to his mindset that he feels he is better whenever he is playing regularly. Like, maybe this is like an insight that he feels he needs to work his way back up to, mm-hmm. like, peak level or something. I'm, it's I'm, more you don't want to give up your jersey in case uh, somebody well, takes it off. You don't get it back. Absolutely. Like, maybe I'm reading into this too much. But To be fair, like, we have seen in multiple Italy games down the years where it doesn't really matter what you do, like you're not going to earn yeah. a second cap the next <laughs> week playing against uh, playing against Italy. 
Or you can be like Craig Gilroy and score a hat trick and then just never play again. <laughs> <laughs> and in terms of like just the the Ireland preview in general, we've talked about what you do want to see, Jonathan. What what do you not want to see on Saturday? Um, I think more is the block as a whole. Like, I think what I don't want to see is Sexton play against Australia. To be honest, um, I think an ideal window for Ireland is probably a win on Saturday. So, like, let's not overlook the importance of this game. Like, this is the number one team in the rankings playing against the world champions. Like, this is the, as big a game as we've. I don't want to get too caught up in like presentism and forget about like the All Blacks coming last year or whatever. But like this to me feels like the biggest game post COVID. I think if this game wasn't a sellout, Johnny would be a shoe in for the RFU's PR department. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it was sold out long ago, actually, um, which speaks to my point. Although to be fair, the Australia game sold out as well. Um, so I think like the ideal window is a win against a fully loaded world champion South Africa team to see some of these new guys whether it be guys that impressed on the Mari tour whether it be guys that impressed in the A fixture on uh, Friday to then see them play against Fiji and I think and this is a difficult conversation probably for Andy Farrell to have with Johnny Sexton but to then say to his captain and most important player we're not going to play in this important test because we need to get a look at somebody else like, it seems almost laughable now that we were talking say two years ago about you know is Johnny Saxon still going to be good enough by the time the 2023 World Cup rolls around because he's obviously good enough like he's still Ireland's best player and the way that he's playing at the minute like he's still one of the best players in the world like I'm not saying he's 2018 world player of the year for him but he's uh, not a million miles off it anyway but what we have not seen since the last World Cup is anybody stake a claim to that backup jersey like Joey Carberry's obviously had his had his injuries we saw him play at 15 a bit for, for Munster this year again and obviously like not to open up like that old can of worms again, but if he was going to be a 15, he could have just stayed at Lancer to be a 15. Kieran Frawley um, has been talked about an awful lot without getting those really important minutes um, for Lancer, obviously because of Saxton. And now we see Jack Crowley emerge, who could well be the th- maybe the third choice, fourth choice 10, but who knows? Could be the second choice 10 by the time the World Cup rolls around so I think obviously the perfect window is three wins but I think three wins with somebody else leading them to a win against Australia is what the ideal window looks like for Ireland What do you think Adam? Do you or what do you sort of not want to see yourself? Don't want to see any injuries <laughs> that would be very helpful um I think one of the things I do want to see is how Ireland counteract the bomb squad, the South South African bomb squad, come on off the bench uh, on Saturday. So what I don't want to see is them having a a second half collapse, essentially, or sort of kind to the pressure of the bomb squad coming on. 
because I think if, if there's still one thing that Ireland haven't quite convinced you know I, I say that very loosely like they're the number one side in the world and mm-hmm. you, you don't become the number one side in the world without having world class players across the park but if there's what one... you're going to say without being the number one side in the world, <laughs> say, well 2019 would beg to differ but sorry but if there's one area where you think Ireland maybe will struggle it's maybe with the bench it's maybe not quite as deep as some other teams. Like you look, it's you not l- like a Marty Moore. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is this Marty Moore fan need. club. <laughs> <laughs> we renamed the podcast the wrong thing. <laughs> it's releasing March. But if called more, more, more. <laughs> where were you in our planning meeting, Johnny? Like, where, but you, you you look at those guys that the Springboks have to bring on: Bongi and Banambi, Oxen Che, Vincent Cock, Franco Franco Mostert, Dion Furry, and Quagga Smith. You know. Guys who are coming, massive guys, really physical guys who can turn the tide of a game at the click of a finger. You know, do Ireland have those guys coming off the bench? A couple, not as many. I would say probably what they would take heart from would be what we saw in New Zealand, where you had guys like Jack Conan and Kieran Treadwell coming off the bench. I suppose ironically Ireland have cost themselves one of those players by and it's still a net positive obviously but by turning Andy Porter into Lucette you have taken away having his impact as a replacement tight head but mm. I think that's a really good, a really really good test on Saturday with that bench of how the Ireland depth is shaping up ahead because we haven't even touched on the fact of just whenever I'm talking about how exciting this game is, we haven't even touched on the fact that this is a World Cup pool game. Mm-hmm. So, like, this is a dry run for a World Cup pool game, and it seems crazy to say it, given that the, the uh, winner quite possibly gets the All Blacks, but you don't want to play France. Well, you don't want to play France at all, but you don't <laughs> want to play France at their own World Cup. Yeah in the Stade de France in a World Cup quarterfinal. So that's probably, I suppose, the overarching thing that you're looking to see from this game is how Ireland combat South Africa's physicality, how they combat that makeup of a team. But a huge part of that makeup of the team is the bench. So it's the 6-2 split, it's the bomb squad. How do you deal with that over the last... I was going to say 30 minutes, but, you know, sometimes you see them even earlier coming mm. on. So, Do you think Ireland will go 6-2 in response? I don't know if they'll go 6-2 because I don't think that they have the same depth of forwards to go 6-2. And I don't know if they are as comfortable with only two backs because if you go 6-2, then who, who are your backs? Mm. Like is it for? Well, it's probably Frawley because he's played fifteen, ten, and twelve. Yeah, you need someone who covers ten. So you have Frawley and a fullback. Sorry, Frawley and a scrum half on your bench. Mm. And does that take away from having somebody like, you know, theoretically, Jacob Robert Balakun on your bench? I don't know. 
I don't. I don't think personally. I don't really like the six T. I think if it works for you, then it works. But I think sometimes teams can lose sight of it and think that you know, just be a bit copycat with it of being like, right, the world champions do that and it worked for them. So should we be doing that? And the reality of it is you could say, yeah, we're going to do that. And then, you know, a center gets injured in after 10 minutes and you've already used one bench player and then you've got a scrum half covering your entire back line for the rest of the game. There's a bombshell for our first podcast back. Johnny slams the world champions tactics. <laughs> no, I, no, I think it absolutely works for them because the I think <laughs> the way that the way that they play it works for them, and the personnel that they have it works for them. But like when when other teams do it, and it just looks like they're doing it just to have an extra, I suppose, an extra back row on the bench. Like unless your back row is worth having on the bench at the expense of a player who would negate that risk that we talked about of um, what could really mess up your game if you get an early injury in the back line. What are your overall predictions then? Like your honest predictions for for Saturday's game, Adam? Deep breath. Yeah. Well, the, the honest truth is I haven't actually really thought about my prediction for the game yet because so much does sort of depend on what Team Ireland put out. You know, if if you put Keenan in from the start, if you put Gibson Park in from the start, even if you put Van der Fleer in from the start who's been struggling with injury, he, he has at least played games this season, but he is probably the most injured of the injured players in, in inverted commas. You know, are those guys ready to face a team as physically powerful and as good as the Springboks, and how much does that affect how the game will go compared to what happens if you start Mike Lowry, or what happens if you go into the game without a breakdown threat like Josh van der Fleer. So, at the moment, and again, it might be sort of recency bias because <laughs> we've just seen the Springboks team and we know the team that they're coming with, I'm going to say that South Africa do actually win this, and I think it will be because of a second half surge from the bench that helps them. But I think if Ireland find a way to negate that second half and find a way to sort of lock it down and give themselves the best advantage possible in the second half, and I, I don't know what that would be like in, in the back of my mind, just running through it there, I was like, if there was a if there was a wind advantage like at Toman Park, no, you you don't get that in the Aviva because it's so. Big, but like, let's say there's a wind advantage. You almost want to play with it in the second half, just so you have it whenever they're trying to bring their big guys on and stuff like that. So, I, I think you you've got to find a way to win the second half. I think the team that wins the second half wins this game, and I think it's going to be South Africa. What do you think, Johnny? You look very deep in thought there. Never he. I, I really enjoy it whenever Johnny disagrees with me because then we can laugh at whoever got it wrong the next week. <laughs> I just, yeah, I think I got caught up in being too excited for the game and didn't... Uh, think about what's going to happen. Think about what's actually going to happen. Yeah, I'm so interested to see what's happened but didn't really think about what I thought was going to happen in advance. Um, I think Ireland are going to win. It is obviously wholly dependent on them getting as much of that team that beat New Zealand 
on the pitch like and there's a lot of question marks even on a Tuesday which would not always have been the case with an Ireland team you know that was Joe Schmidt's thing basically if, if you weren't training on a Tuesday you weren't playing um, but I think I think it's going to be a great game and I think Ireland will just edge it and I think it's a pity that it like it, it is a pity that it is up first because you know you've got the Fiji game which with the best will in the world obviously it's Fiji entertaining to watch but this middle one always feels a bit sort of like you just kind of shoehorned it in because yeah, you need another fixture. Yeah, it's it's a lull in the calendar, and then so when you have your big game first and your lesser game third, um, it feels like there's an awful lot on this sort of first eighty minutes, and we haven't really had a good barometer of where Ireland are at. Obviously, we saw, saw South Africa more recently um, in the rugby championship, but I mean, like, Ireland don't lose a lot of games in Dublin really so this is probably the biggest challenge they've had since uh, since France came during the Six Nations when we had a very very different Ireland team but also I mean we're a year before a World Cup so this is when Ireland come into their own like Mm. uh, this is when Ireland peak so this this should be the best that we see from them yeah three wins this autumn Grand Slam in the Six Nations They'll squeeze by their warm-up opponents and then crash out in the quarterfinals, as per always. Well, it'll be interesting to see what we have to say when we come back next Tuesday to review it. And thanks for listening, everybody. Remember, you can also catch up with all the news, reviews, analysis and live blogs, everything to do with rugby on belfasttelegraph.co.uk. And we will catch you next Tuesday. 